Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. We've got a lot coming up in the program today. Jen Senko is going to be with us for conversations with great minds about her new book, The Brainwashing of My Dad. There's a documentary of the same title. Um, multiple crazy alerts today. Fox News defense Christopher Columbus celebrating the ethnicity of America. The president has issued just an absolutely elegant statement about Indigenous Peoples Day, by the way. And... He becomes the first American president to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, Donald Trump, for the four years of his presidency, refused to do so. This was put into place back uh, at the end of the Obama administration. And this is so sweet. He says, for generations, federal policies systematically sought to assimilate and displace Native people and eradicate Native cultures. We recommit to supporting a new, brighter future of promise and equity for tribal nations. It's, uh, it's marvelous. And I want to get into Kirsten Sinema's political career and what it says about Citizens United and our republic. Kirsten Sinema, this is absolutely fascinating. Sinema, as you know, and as we discussed on the program, started out as a social worker, then went on to the uh, Arizona State House of Representatives, then on to the Arizona State Senate, and then ran for the U.S. House of Representatives in 2012. And when she did a commercial, the guy who was running against her, Vernon Parker, ran this incredible commercial against her. It came right out and said that she was a radical left-wing activist promoting hatred toward our country, our allies, and our families, and warning people that she was engaged in pagan rituals. Uh, Cinema was a progressive right up until she ran for the U.S. House of Representatives and, and nearly got trounced by a Republican with massive amounts of money coming in. And then just like hooked up with the big money people in Washington, D.C., the No Labels Group and the Blue Dog Caucus and whatnot started taking money from corporations and started voting with the Chamber of Commerce, and so they even endorsed her. And I think that this ad that she confronted in the 2012 election, the first time she ran for Congress for the House of Representatives, is probably uh, you know, emblematic of what might have caused her to say, wait a minute, do I really want to fight these guys or do I want to join them? Here's the, the last uh, 25, 30 seconds of it. And perhaps the weirdest of all, cinema participated in pagan rituals, singing and spiraling during an anti-war protest. 
Kirsten Cinema is not a garden variety liberal Democrat. It's far, far worse. Kirsten Cinema is a radical left-wing activist who promoted hatred toward our country, our allies, and our families. We can't let her anywhere near Congress. Now, can you imagine if you're running for Congress and, and somebody's running an ad like that saying that you hate American families, you hate American values, you're trashing the country, you're a hippie, uh, you engage in pagan, pagan ritual <laughs> at that point? What do you do? Well, Citizens United, as I said, Citizens United opened the door for this. You know, for a person to say, well, you know, okay, I'm, I'm going to win the next time, but I'm going to do it. You know, the, the way that is now kind of the official law of the United States, I'm going to do it with money from giant corporations and right-wing billionaires. And, you know, Citizens United, of course, doubled down on corporate personhood. And John Paul Stevens says, all general business corporation statutes appear to date from well after 1800. In other words, there were no corporations in the modern form when the Constitution was written. But nonetheless, he said, the framers thus took it as a given that corporations would be comprehensively regulated in the service of the public welfare. Unlike our conservative colleagues on the bench, he said, actually, he just said, unlike our colleagues, they had, they, the founders, had little trouble distinguishing corporations from human beings. And when they constitutionalized the right to free speech in the First Amendment, it was the free speech of individual Americans they had in mind. The fact that corporations are different from human beings, Stevens wrote in his dissent in Citizens United, might seem to need no elaboration, except that the majority opinion almost completely elides it or ignores it or sets it aside. Unlike natural persons, corporations have limited liability, perpetual life, favorable treatment and accumulation of assets. Unlike voters in U.S. elections, corporations may be foreign controlled. And he goes on and on through this. And then he says, the biggest problem of the fact that in, in 2010, officially, by law, because of the Supreme Court, it became legal for billionaires and right-wing corporations or incorporations to buy politicians like Kirsten Sinema. Uh, he says, in addition to the immediate drowning out of non-corporate voices, there may be deleterious effects that follow soon thereafter. And here we are, 11 years out. Tell me that he wasn't prescient. It's like this guy had a time machine. He died in 2019, so you can't ask him now. But how did you know, Justice Stevens? He says, corporate domination of electioneering. This is from the Citizens United dissent. You can read it over at the Supreme Court website. Corporate domination of electioneering can generate the impression that corporations dominate our democracy. When citizens turn on their televisions and radios before an election and hear only corporate electioneering, they may lose faith in their capacity as citizens to influence public policy. A government captured by corporate interests, they may come to believe, will be neither responsive to their needs nor willing to give their views a fair hearing. Gee, are we there yet? I mean, it's like, you know, look at everything that's in the Build Back Better bill. 70% of people in Arizona want that but not Kirsten Sinema because she's taking money from these giant corporations. So again, back to, back to Justice John Paul Stevens in his dissent in Citizens United in 2010, quote, the predictable result is cynicism and disenchantment, an increased perception that large spenders call the tune and a reduced willingness of voters to take part in democratic governance. To the extent that corporations are allowed to exert undue influence in electoral races, the speech of the eventual winners of those races, keep in mind Kirsten Sinema in 2012, you know, a liberal running for Congress, 
the speech of the eventual winners of those races may also be chilled. And then he goes on to say, on a variety of levels, unregulated corporate electioneering might diminish the ability of citizens to hold officials accountable to the people. Gee, are we seeing that right now? And disserve the goal of a public debate that is uninhibited, robust, and wide open. I, you know, in my mind, the only way to deal with this is to uh, blow up Citizens United. And the Citizens United part of politics was blown up by the For the People Act, H.R. 1. But, you know, as long as the filibuster's in place, there's no possibility that's going to pass. And even if the filibuster was removed, in all probability, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema would vote against it. Although you never know. I mean, it, it would help them uh, if they remain Democrats. It would help them moving forward. So who knows? Who knows? Anyhow, let me pick up your phone calls here. Johan in Los Angeles. Hey, Johan, what's up? I want to know why we keep celebrating Columbus Day when he's not the founder of the country. Why well, we keep celebrating this day? Well, I think we've by and large stopped celebrating it. It's now uh, Indigenous Peoples Day rather than Columbus Day. Although, you know, many, in many states it's still called Columbus Day, and it's going to take a while for that to change. But you're right, Columbus did not discover this continent even. I mean, the Vikings were here 500 exactly. years before Columbus, and Native Americans were here 20,000 years before Columbus. So, yes. I mean, how do you discover a country that's already occupied? I don't get it. Same here. Yeah, yeah. Well said, Johan. I, you know, hopefully we'll move through this. And James in Montgomery, Alabama. Hey, James, what's on your mind? I'm here. Hey, Happy there you are. Thank you. Happy, Happy Indigenous, Indigenous people. In, in, back at you. You know, <laughs> for the 18 years that I've been doing this show, every Columbus Day, I would read my rant from Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight about how Columbus tortured people and murdered people and raped people and sold young girls into slavery and all this kind of stuff. And uh, this year, we reached out to a, to a few Native American groups that we've had on the program in the past to see if they might be available to do a hit. None of them were. But this year, I'm not reading that because I'm just not even, I mean, I'm I guess I'm talking about Columbus right now, but I was going to, my intention was to ignore Columbus and just focus on indigenous people and, and what a marvelous thing it is and this wonderful speech that Joe Biden gave. But is that what you called about? Not really. I just wanted to uh, wish that to you and, and you. say that uh, the progress you're working towards does show measurable results yeah. <laughs> once in a while. No, what I wanted to talk about was, I mean, I hear you. We know it's true. They've always been grifters. And there was a certain lady on Wall Street that wanted to privatize Social Security. And this was in the middle 80s. Sure. And I don't think it was a new idea then. No, Reagan, so Reagan talked about it. And George W. Bush Absolutely. campaigned on it. He traveled all around the country in 2005. He gave 20 speeches pitching the idea of privatizing Social Security. Every speech he gave, it got less popular, so he finally gave up. But it's been around for a while. You will recall that when Donald Trump was running for president in 2016, he said he was going to raise taxes on the rich. People loved him for that. I mean, I think that a lot of people, I know people who voted for him because he said he was going to do that. He said he was going to expand Medicare and Social Security, 
People loved him for that. He, you know, he said he was going to expand the social safety net. And he said that the system is rigged by rich people and big corporations, and he was going to break that. He was going to drain that swamp. He used to have rallies where he'd have people chanting, drain the swamp, drain the swamp. And then who does he put in charge of the Commerce Department? Uh, Wilbur Ross, who Forbes magazine said may well be the biggest grifter in the history of America. <laughs> I'm afraid they just need to get through what they can. Whatever they can get Joe Manchin and they should bribe some of these independents because that is the currency of Congress and the reality of the Senate especially. And just get some stuff passed. I suspect it's going to end up there in all probability, which doesn't make me happy at all. And I don't think it's going to help the Democrats in 2022 or 2024, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I would like, I mean, the alternative, of course, is to just, you know, shove this down the throats of Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, and there's probably a half a dozen other Democrats who don't want to blow up the filibuster by ending the filibuster and then putting some real, real legislation in place that's going to do something serious. But yeah, James, thank you for the call. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. here with you on the line with us for our conversations with great minds deep dive is uh, jen senko jen was first on this program years ago when the documentary the brainwashing of my dad came out it's still available jen can tell us in just a moment where you can find it but she now has a book out by the same title based on the award-winning documentary the the brainwashing of my dad and then the subtitle how the rise of the right-wing media changed a father and divided our nation and how we can fight back uh, Jen, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tom. It's great to be back with you. Thank you. So I want to get into your dad's story. I mean, this is that's kind of the spine of the book. But before we do, in the book, you start out actually with the backstory, even you know before your dad was well, certainly before your dad started watching Fox News. In chapter one, the Great Depression, the New Deal, and the Nazi propaganda that paved the way for extreme right-wing media. Can you explain this to us? Yeah. What are you talking about here? Okay, first I just want to say we're sunk unless we can fix or fight the media, Tom. It has a very powerful, almost magical effect on all of us. It's how we get our information about what's going on in our world, but not only that, it, it does shape who we are and what we believe more than we like to think it does. So um, I went back to FDR he was one of the only ones that was paying attention to the propaganda that was going on in Germany before World War II. And he noticed the incredible effect it it was having on the German people. And he thought, well, if this is this is what happens when you have one-sided media, one-sided radio especially because there was radio back I, then. I have a clip. Can I interrupt with a clip? Oh, you this, bet. This is FDR talking about exactly what you're talking about. This is Franklin Delano Roosevelt as President of the United States. Remember, a number of years ago, there was a book, Mein Kampf, written by Hitler himself. The technique was all set out in Hitler's book, and it was copied by the aggressors of Italy and Japan. 
According to that technique, you should never use a small falsehood. Always a big one. <laughs> For its very fantastic nature would make it more credible. If only you keep repeating it over and over and over again. There you go. If we only had someone that courageous now who can actually just tell the truth about it. But I think that right-wing media has everybody kind of like shell-shocked and on the defensive and almost like abused spouses. You know, people people are so afraid to bring up like the fairness doctrine, like that's a bad word, or, you know, talk about any kind of fairness going on in the media. So, or um, even look at what Canada banned Fox News. <laughs> I mean, yeah. They just said, we don't want that's poison. We don't want it here. Yeah. It's very dangerous, Fox News, mm. for many, many reasons. I mean, it, it, people talk about social media and all that, but Fox News is um, the seedbed mm. of a lot of this. A lot of this emanates from, right. from so, Fox. So, back to the 1930s. I'm sorry, I, I derailed you there. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, so anyway, I think that's where a lot of things started with FDR. First of all, he had the foresight to see how powerful media could be and was alarmed by it and so came up with the Radio Act of, uh, I think it was 1929, and then created later on all these rules for ownership and that there had to be, and in the Fairness Doctrine, there had to be diverse opinions. So he had a lot of foresight. And his other thing, the New Deal, is sort of when the wealthy kind of got up on their heels and thought, oh, no, we're going to have to pay more taxes. So he started a lot. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely did. And these techniques, as you talk about, you know, the, the paved the way. Here's for right-wing media. I'm sorry. Right. The, the tactics, a lot of the tactics, it was so funny as I was researching what a, a lot of the Nazi tactics were, I was thinking, oh my gosh, that's what right-wing media does. And I'm sure that Roger Ailes delved into it and many learned from it. Why not? I mean, they were smart and they knew what they wanted to do. So yeah. they wanted to learn from the best, quote unquote. Right, and even in the 30s, this was not a new idea. I mean, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli wrote The Prince back in, what, the 1530s or something like that? I mean, it was a long time ago. From there you go to, that's your first chapter, from there you go to The Right is Declared Dead. What, what are you talking about here in your chapter two? Oh, okay. So I'll just do just like a little bit of real quick history before that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the right was really pissed off after, I hope I can say that on you your radio yes. show. Um, you know, after FDR, like had the New Deal and it, it saved the Depression and there was a middle class that was growing. And, and then Brown versus Board of Education happened in 1954. And this guy, Buchanan, James remember Buchanan. his first name right? Yeah, he got very mm, upset about it because he didn't want to be paying taxes for everybody to go to school, especially black kids. But it kind of started him on this quest to turn back the clock in a way. And he enlisted the help of Coke, um, the father Coke. And Fred. they kind of, you know, were researching and thinking, what can we do? What can we do? 
And then later on, the Birch Society was created. And at the time, I grew up in the 60s, so I, I remember the, the Birch Society, and everybody thought, oh, my gosh, these people are so kooky. But it is exactly kind of like what's happening now and what's being the thoughts that are being held by right the right. But anyway, so Goldwater actually ran on the the Birch's uh, platform. And so he, because they were just considered kooky, um, and they were for small government, like no government pretty much, and everybody was a communist, even General Eisenhower. Um, you know, they were, they were like McCarthy Plus. So when Goldwater ran on that platform, uh, he just got slaughtered by Johnson. And and at that time, also, there were movements afoot that were going on that were um, trying to break free from, like, restrictive social mores and equal rights for everybody. You know, there was a burgeoning middle class. And then there were these shows on, like Rowan and Martin. And, you know, it, it just seemed it was in to be liberal. Mm-hmm. And so the right was declared dead by pundits. And so that's when they started to really organize and say, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, number one, since the media, like people like Walter Cronkite, tell the truth, that doesn't look that good for us. So we better start painting the media as liberal. So they created an organization called AIM, A-I-M, and to... Accuracy in media, wasn't it? Right, right, right. And this was um, this was Lee Atwater's famous we need to work the refs, the referees being the, the media. Yeah, that's right. So that was that was like the beginning of it. That was their their goal. And they even got on boards, corporation broadcast corporation boards to influence them and they would really this is when the screaming started, like it was a coordinated attack to anybody that had anything liberal on and didn't have uh, anything conservative on, they would attack them. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so they kind of like built that up. And that's uh, that happened there. But I could go on. Yeah. Well, f- you know, f- feel free to wrap that up if you want, and then we'll hit a break. And yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that parlayed next into I was going to talk about Roger Ailes uh-huh. and. Roger Ailes, everybody, all these pundits, this is what people get wrong about Fox. A lot of people in the media think that Fox only got bad and extreme after 9-11, or that maybe it leaned a little conservative. I'm sure it didn't start out as extreme as it got. It gradually got more and more extreme as simultaneously, and not coincidentally, the Republican Party got more extreme. But for those that don't know or forget, Rupert Murdoch hired Roger Ailes to create Fox, and they both had an agenda. Roger Ailes wanted a TV station that would make the GOP look good. Yeah, he'd pitched it to Nixon. That's right. It was a secret memo that was unearthed in the annals of the Nixon Library. And it it actually outlined a clear strategy for creating a TV news station that would uh, promote a GOP agenda. It was even called the plan for putting the GOP on TV news. So 
the plan laid out how it could use biased media to create GOP viewers and thus GOP voters. It wasn't planned to serve the GOP, you know, like mm-hmm. people who already were. And it was planned to convert viewers. Today's show isn't over after our last sponsor ad. Stick around or you'll miss a former FBI agent warning homeowners of the scariest trend in identity theft. It's called home title theft, and it could literally get you evicted from your home. So stay with me at the end of my podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. (sighs) The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're talking with Jan Senko in our conversations with the great minds here. This is uh, about her book, The Brainwashing of My Dad. So Ailes gets hired. There's an, a fascinating op-ed, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, that was written by Kevin Rudd, who was the Prime Minister of Australia yes. back 15 years ago or thereabouts. And it was in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is kind of their New York Times. And it was titled, Rupert Murdoch is the cancer that is destroying Australian democracy. And in that, he lays out how Murdoch basically, you know, rewrote politics in Australia by ending up owning more than half of all the newspapers by circulation in the country and then, you know, picking up media channels as well. And then he went on to the United Kingdom and he did the same thing there. And then he came to the United States and he's doing the same thing here. Right. So you've got Roger Ailes being hired by Rupert Murdoch. Who's driving the, the, driving the cart here? Well, I think that they, they were like a perfect a match made in hell. They kind of like coincided. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, to me, he wanted control. He's, he's a major control freak, and he wants... You're right. What happened is when he bought all these newspapers, he realized that he could get in a politician that he liked and then get them out when he was, you know, done with them. So that's why he started doing this, you know, almost all over the world in New Zealand and England and then came here and Reagan made him a citizen. Thank you very much, Mr. Reagan, in 1985, so that he could buy more media. And this was as media ownership rules were, you know, gradually like loosening up. 
so, yeah, then he just expanded his empire even more, especially after the Telecommunications Reform Act in 1996. But that's jumping ahead. The other thing you asked that was driving, I think when you were asked, when you asked what was driving this, are you referring to just between Limbaugh and Murdoch? Uh, between Ailes and Murdoch, I, you know, I would, Ailes was famously yeah, that's what paranoid. I meant. Yeah. His house was like barricaded. I mean, I, at least according to the documentary on him, I saw Citizen Ailes. I think yeah. it was. You know, he was a little nutty. And yeah. Murdoch is more of just, you know, from everything I've been able to read, just your old-fashioned right-wing billionaire who thinks of himself as, as you know, the master of the universe, the guy who's smarter than everybody yeah. else, and everybody just needs to think like me. Yeah, I think you're right, yeah. So, he even one time said that, you know, a dictatorship probably wouldn't be so bad. Yeah. So do you think that Murdoch was motivated more by a desire to make money on this right-wing shtick? Or no. that, okay, or the ideology I, I, I itself? I, I think he wanted to do both. I think he wanted control. And that, that's, that's another thing that people get wrong, is that they think that Fox is just doing this to make money. But they figured out how they could actually get people hooked. You know, Roger Ailes was a genius that way by introducing anger and emotion into these newscasts. You'd right. never seen emotion and, and all that in newscasts before. You know, it was Walter Cronkite who was, right. you know, just... Nice, boring news. Yeah. Jen right. Senko is right. with us, the brainwashing of my dad. Talking with Jen Senko about her book, The Brainwashing of My Dad. So, so now we have in place this right-wing media machine, Fox News, with Roger Ailes, uh, uh, you know, running it, uh, de designing it to be as addictive as possible, with lots and lots of emotion, and uh, particularly addictive for older, older men because you've got a lot of, you know, the, the bimbo blonde kind of stereotype thing just really came into full blossom with Fox News. And go ahead. Yeah, there, there was another reason why it appealed to older white men. It wasn't just because he had those leggy blondes who were required to wear short skirts. That was one, I'm sure that was one big motivating reason. But also, white men at that time, with all of the social movements that had been going on since the 70s, I mean, they were dying down, but they kind of felt like they were being phased out. They would have to reinvent themselves. They were angry. They knew that the system was rigged, but they didn't know how. And they didn't know who to blame. So here you have the guilty party to blame telling them, hey, I know why you're so mad. It's Democrats. Everything fell under the umbrella of Democrats, hmm. like whether it was race or culture, anything that smacked of being liberal that was demonized. And so that's what they latched onto. They were angry. And so there was a port for them to dock their ship in. Yeah, I remember in the 50s and 60s, the argument, uh, my dad took me to a John Birch Society meeting when I was like 12 or 13. Um, wow. You know, the argument was black people are coming for your jobs. By the 70s, as the women's movement was happening, it was women are coming for your job. And then, you know, of course, you've got all this social ferment as we go into the 80s and Ailes is starting Fox News. And, and then it's they're both coming for your job. 
So then it's what? Then it's they're both coming for your job. It's the black people, <laughs> right. it's, the, it's the women, and right. now and then you know of course yeah. Trump kicked off his campaign with the Mexicans yeah. are coming for your job. Oh my yeah. God, you know, and and the Muslims <laughs> want to come blow up your buildings, and so you know let's all get hysterical here together and, and be totally right. freaked out. We're right. talking and the Democrats are letting in all the immigrants in order to replace you white folks. Exactly. So we're talking with Jen Senko. Uh, the the book is the brainwashing of my dad. How the rise of the right wing media changed. A father and divided our nation and how we can fight back. I want to get into the story of your dad specifically, Jenna. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Brainwashing of My Dad, How the Rise of the Right-Wing Media Changed a Father and Divided Our Nation and How We Can Fight Back by Jen Senko. This is from Chapter 6, How Talk Radio Hijacked My Dad. In 1984, Reagan was re-elected in a landslide victory against liberal Democrat Walter Mondale. That year was also when everything began to change for my dad and our family. In 1984, dad retired from his job with the federal government at age 62. Both my parents missed being near the shore, so they moved back to New Jersey and settled in Tom's River, a town where there was a large retired population. Still energetic, my father got a part-time engineering job three or four days a week, necessitating a long solo commute by car. He didn't want to waste time on music while driving. He wanted to be stimulated mentally, and he discovered talk radio to keep himself company. At the time, Bob Grant was the dominant talk radio personality. Often called the father of conservative radio, Grant was an openly racist, sexist, far-right shock jock. On his WABC radio show, he referred to blacks and Hispanics as savages. He believed them to be inferior, and he once even called Martin Luther King Jr. a slimeball. With his combative and testy style, he was considered a pioneer of the talk radio format. Soon, Grant became my dad's commuting buddy. I didn't know Bob Grant from Joe Namath, but I did know I didn't care for his style of yelling at callers or hanging up on them if they disagreed with him. My mother was not a fan of Grant's either, and she delighted in telling me the story of how she ran into him one day. She was at the Ocean County Mall eatery, sitting at a table having lunch when she saw Grant walk in. She recognized him, and when he passed her table, she asked, you're Bob Grant, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. She said, oh, my husband likes you, but I don't. He had been walking away and turned to look back at my mother and gave a little laugh. She, just, she said she just sat there at the table and did not smile back. Gradually, it seemed my dad started becoming more agitated after listening to Bob Grant. Eventually, he became consistently more irritable, excitable, and easier to anger. Little did we know a metamorphosis was beginning. Along with massive deregulation in the communications industry, there were several other factors that led to talk radio's explosion of popularity in the 1980s. The first was that music had moved from the AM dial to the high fidelity sound of FM and thus left a void on the AM dial. Broadcasters realized that filling that blank airspace with mainstream news wouldn't make much money. However, entertainment made money. And talk radio was entertainment at its finest, even when it masqueraded as news coverage. Human conversation didn't benefit from high-fidelity sound the way music did, so talk radio filled the void on the AM radio waves perfectly. The second contributor to talk radio's rise was the new accessibility of satellite technology, allowing anyone to broadcast a show nationally. And the third was the fact that when 1-800 numbers became available, you could have callers call in from all over the country. These factors combined to make a pretty powerful storm. The format of talk radio was, of course, not new. 
The format first debuted in the 1920s, continuing with Father Charles Coughlin's controversial and anti-Semitic radio broadcasts in the 1930s. Coughlin has often been referred to as the father of hate radio, and he paved the way for all that has come in his medium. Many of the most famous conservative talk radio personalities modeled themselves after the 1950s sensation Joe Pine. His show, It's, Not, it's Your Nickel, consisted of Pine debating his opinions with people calling in. Calls often culminated with him insulting the caller to the delight of his audience. The format of talk radio evolved from there, but many of the most popular shows and hosts, including Bob Grant, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, and Glenn Beck, have stuck with the confrontational tone and high emotion interactions that these early hosts introduced. There haven't been many successful liberal talk radio hosts. Ed Schultz, Randy Rhodes, and Alan Combs tried to make inroads, but simply failed to draw a large audience, in quotes. You may wonder why conservative talk radio programs have been so phenomenally popular while equivalent liberal shows have foundered. Aside from big money to support it, the secret seems to lie in the inflammatory approach favored by these so-called conservative hosts. Abram Brown of Forbes says of liberal talk radio shows, it's not the same thing as a Limbaugh or a Hannity. It's more general, not really railing against the system. No one's yelling, we need to get rid of the Republicans. They're the worst thing that happened in this country. But you'll hear conservative radio hosts say that about liberals on their programs. Brown makes another good point that speaks to that. Tell your audience that the mainstream media is corrupt and biased. Then there's all the more reason to turn to your conservative talk radio to get the truth. Anger is a hot commodity. Finding an enemy is even hotter. Or as Ailes might say, it's the emotions, stupid. He did not actually say that. A little known but very chilling example of how powerfully influential radio can be is the 1994 Rwandan genocide, where an estimated 800,000 citizens were brutally murdered by their fellow citizens, the Hutus. This happened after an intense radio campaign that started in 1993 dehumanized and demonized one group, the Tutsis. Militia groups were formed, and police and soldiers joined them in the killing. Samantha Power, who later served as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, said killers often carried a machete in one hand and a transistor radio in the other hand. Dad discovers Rush Limbaugh. About a year or so after working part-time in his long commute, my dad officially retired. The book, The Brainwashing of My Dad, by Jen Senko. And welcome back. We're talking with Jen Senko about her new book. And uh, Jenna, we haven't talked about your dad yet. Tell us about your dad. Okay. Well, I think the reason why the story of my dad is important is because it's the story of millions and millions of people. When one thing, if you've seen the movie, you know that what happened is that a lot of people got in touch with me to tell me their stories. So my dad, when, when I was growing up in the 60s, my dad was a goofy, fun, open-minded, like non-political FDR slash JFK Democrat. He grew up during the Great Depression, and things notably got better when FDR came in. So that's why there was a lot of Democrats back then. And my dad loved all people, loved to talk to them. He wasn't judgmental. And then he retired in the late 80s. He got a part-time job with a long commute. And so in order to not be bored, he found talk radio to keep him company. And it was uh, who you mentioned earlier. It was Bob Grant, the openly racist and sexist early shock jock. Okay. 
And then after time, his personality, it seemed like his personality was gradually beginning to change. He just became a little more angry and angry and definitely more critical of Democrats. And then about a year later, he completely retired and he discovered Rush Limbaugh. And that's sort of when he fell in, got a big, giant man crush. He began listening to Limbaugh for three hours a day, five days a week. My mother was, you know, banished from the kitchen during her lunch hour. And then his personality drastically changed. Um, he, He became enraged about nearly everything. And every belief that he'd had before changed to match Limbaugh's. And then when he discovered Fox, he just became religiously fanatical. And, you know, he found these emails. He started emailing the the entire, it's not funny at all, but the entire family, all these suspiciously similar emails, they all had one thing in common. They all demonized Democrats in one way or another. So once where once before he'd been open-minded and loved talking to like let's say foreigners to see how well he knew their language because he knew about seven different languages. So uh, you know enough to see if he could have a conversation with them. He became very anti-illegal immigrant. He was once dirt poor, but he became anti-poor person, believing they all just wanted handouts, and he became very anti-government when it was because of the government that he was able to rise to middle-class status from the GI Bill and other benefits, not to mention that he worked for the government all his life and made a very good living. Um, But Limbaugh and all of this provided him with a powerful kick of dopamine and got his amygdala in full gear and my dad was just a different person and it was very upsetting it felt like it was dividing the whole family you know like when he'd send he just constantly picked arguments he hated clinton of course because uh, limbaugh railed against clinton and just was like trying to convert us. You know, that's why mm-hmm. I say it was almost like religiously fanatical. Mm-hmm. And it was unbearable. And my mother in her 80s almost left him. One day she wrote me an email said, I'm thinking of um, leaving daddy. Uh, could you help me find an apartment? That's really wow. sad. But I said, I don't think that's such a good idea right now. But instead what she started doing was researching and checking, you know, asking him to check his sources. Mm-hmm. And she was the only one who would respond back to him via email. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how far you want me to go with this story, no, it's, Tom. It's, it's fine. We've, we've, I, I, it's, I think this is, this is a story that many Americans have shared, and I think it needs to be told in its fullness. Right. Well, just to show, I mean, this kind of is like... Um, spoiling the end of the movie, but that's okay, because I think that the lesson that you can draw from it is extremely important. So anyway, my mom and dad would have these email arguments, and he understood how we all felt. One day they moved to a senior community, and in that move, somehow his radio got broken. I don't know how. But it got broken, and he put it in the garage, intending to fix it, because he used to like to fix things. But 
until he got around to it, he started having lunch with my mom again, you know, and and, and they would watch Instead whatever of was. Right, right. Suddenly Limbaugh was gone. And you know what? It was such a big deal, the move and all that. Mm-hmm. He just wasn't in a hurry to replace it. It kind of disrupted those electrical synapses that were going on in his brain. And so he would they would watch the news during lunch, but it would just be like mainstream media news. And one day my mom had to get a... Um, they had to get a new TV for the kitchen, and she loved programming remotes. I mean, she would come to my house and program my remotes. She programmed the remotes, but the thing is, is she had stickies all over them. So when my dad did eat alone, he he just watched whatever she had had on. Mm-hmm. So very gradually, he began to soften up a little bit, and then one day... He went into the hospital for a kidney stone. Well, hang on. If I could just back up. Did she program the remote so he couldn't see Fox News anymore? No, no. She didn't do it on purpose. It's just it was too much for him to figure out because she put these stickies explaining what to do. How Uh press press this button first and then that button. So the bottom line is he, he, he lost access to Fox News. Yeah, yeah, basically, okay. yeah. yeah. All right. So, so that was taken away, and then so was uh, Limbaugh taken mm-hmm. away, right. and he, he found himself enjoying his lunch hour again with my mom. They mm-hmm. they used to have great conversations. Mm-hmm. I remember that when I was little. Like, gee, they always find something to talk about. Yeah. Uh, one day he had to go into the hospital. He had a kidney stone. He was there for a week. And they had these old clunky computers back then. And my mother said, Jennifer, would you mind going on Daddy's computer and killing some of his email? It, it's, I, it's, I'm afraid it's going to clog up his computer. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And I tried doing that. And I said, Mom, they, they just keep coming, you know. So these right-wing emails that he had subscribed to, these listservs and things. Right, right, mm-hmm. which he would often give lots of money to. Oh, um, so my mom, I caught her on his computer, not only unsubscribing him from them, but subscribing him to other types of media. Ah, uh, your, your mom was one wily one. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, she, she judge her, if you will, but she had to endure him for mm-hmm. 20 years like this. Sure. So... You know, she uh, subscribed into Truth Out and Alternate and Radio Supported News and, you know, whatever. And when he came home from the hospital, <laughs> he just continued reading whatever was in, in his computer. Mm-hmm. And um, one day my mom called me up very excited and said, guess what? I said, what? She said, Daddy said he likes Obama. I said, What? Nah. And she said, yeah, yeah, he did. And then, like, about two weeks later, he said it again. And on his birthday, which was October 31st, I went down there with my camera, and she brought it up. Like, so who are you going to vote for in this election? Mm-hmm. It was the second time he ran. My father said, I'm, I'm going to vote for Obama. He, he's a pretty good guy. He's doing things all right. I think she nearly choked on the birthday cake. Wow. And we had my dad back, and he became, oh my God, the sweetest old guy, like singing his old Ukrainian songs and telling his corny jokes, and 
I got close to him. I, w- I like would wait on him, you know, and I enjoyed doing it because he was just so pleasant to be around and he wasn't trying to convert us all the time. And it just, you know, it, it didn't matter to me, like, whether he was a Republican or Democrat, he said in the end, I'm I'm half I'm not all Democrat, I'm not all Republican. Fine. He just wasn't extreme. He right. wasn't fanatical. And he wasn't raging mad. And he wasn't you know I I think like what happens is if something happens to our amygdala, if I may, the amygdala is the primitive part of our brain, which we relied on and we still rely it's on. It's the fight or flight center essentially. Exactly, exactly, fight or flight. And it's the emotion center. It's where you process emotions. And once the amygdala is activated, your cerebral cortex, the front of your brain, is not active, which is the rational thinking part of your brain. So with the amygdala, there's sort of an addiction to anger going on. Mm -hmm. And so I think he had a break from that addiction, and then he just enjoyed being happy. And, you know, that's why it's a truly extraordinary, a truly extraordinary arc. You know, the the, the arc of that story is amazing. I want to get into how other, you know, what what you've heard from other people and what we all can do, what other people can do, particularly if if people in their orbits have been uh, sucked into this. We'll be right back with Jen Senko, her new book, The Brainwashing of My Dad. The website is thebrainwashingofmydad.com. That's also the title of the book. Jen Senko, S-E-N-K-O, is the author. We'll be right back. Stick around after the podcast while a former FBI agent demonstrates the scariest identity theft trend out there, stealing your home's title. So stay with me at the end of my podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Jen, tell me about how you made a documentary about your dad, the brainwashing of my dad. That came out, it seems like it was almost a decade ago. 
2016. Yeah, oh, 2016. Uh, it wasn't that, mm -hmm. that long ago. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, we had you on the program talking about it, and, and I've, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've referenced it when people call and say, what can I do, what can I do? Um, say, so, well, start out by watching this, this uh, documentary. Um, and, and a lot of people reached out to you with their personal stories. What, uh, what, that must have been a fascinating experience. Tell me what you, what you learned from that. I learned that it was a phenomenon. I learned that this was, everybody thought they were alone. Now, media are beginning to cover some of these stories, especially since QAnon and the extreme that QAnon goes to, which is even beyond, beyond the free market, you know, push and uh, privatization and no taxes and small government is beyond beyond. So these stories are becoming more public. And there's a place on our website where people can actually go and um, submit their stories because it feels good for them. They feel alone. And it's, it's, uh, it's at the point where it's a, a plague. It's almost like a mass brainwashing. I mean, beyond Jim Jones, kind of like Rwanda, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. where over 800,000 people were killed, and they would often carry their radios with them um, and their machetes. And um, I mean, it is that serious. It, it is. It is to me. It's. It's a national emergency. It's a very, 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 very serious problem. It's not just our families that are divided. Now it's the country. Um, you know, it hasn't been this divided since the Civil War. But I am heartened because I feel, I used to feel like I was fighting alone, or like, except for people like, like you and Eric Bullard and um, Jeff Cohen. Um, but basically, nobody seemed like my friends and just regular people seemed to understand that there was a really bad problem going on. And now, lately, I think because of COVID, I got involved in all these podcasts. Mm -hmm. I have found that there are a couple groups that are actually um, trying to deal with this problem. Um, so so um, there's Sue Wilson, who you might know of Media Action Center, and she has a very good list of things you can do on her website uh, called Sue Wilson Reports. Another this this group is um, this other group. It's called uh, DDAD for short, DDAD, Defenders of Democracy Against Disinformation. You can only get them by going on their site. You can't Google them. Stop in stopdisinformation.org. Mm -hmm. So they're a newly formed organization intending to fight um, disinformation in media. And they have several campaigns going right now, and um, right now they're kind of focusing on on Fox first. So one of the campaigns is Change the Channel. Mm -hmm. Another one is Fix Fox Now, where shareholders have a resolution to register as a public benefit media corporation. And another is $2 for Truth with a little civil disobedience. Wow. Well, I, I want to recap that. I want to recap that real quickly when we come back on the other side of this break. Okay. And welcome.
Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. We're talking to Jen Senko, the author of The Brainwashing of My Dad, How the Rise of the Right-Wing Media Changed a Father and Divided Our Nation and How We Can Fight Back. Uh, it's also the title, uh, The Brainwashing of My Dad, of her documentary. And uh, there's a nice little blurb on the front cover there. <laughs> it is brilliant, Jen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I just, just oh, saw that. A friend That's of cool. mine. Uh, yeah, Tom Hortman did that. There you go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so tell us, you know, you, you, you've told us where this all came from in this, in this hour. We, we've talked about where this all came from, how it arose, uh, you know, how it's become basically a giant, not just money-making machine, but, but country-changing machine, how it altered the the actual personality of your father and how you were able to help him recover. Uh, we've talked a little bit about what other people are, you know, ha are doing in their own families to, to try to reclaim their parents and brothers and sisters and you know, siblings and relatives and whatnot. Um, there, there are some organizations that are focused on this issue of right-wing media brainwashing Americans. I mean, you know, it, 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 when you think about it, what would it take to get you, uh, Jen Senko, to show up at the U.S. Capitol and beat the crap out of a police officer. I mean, it would take a lot, right? I mean, yeah. it, it would take some serious indoctrination. And, yes. and uh, I'm, uh, we're not talking here about just, you know, the, 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 the war of opinions or the battle of, of uh, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, ratings between networks or anything like that. We're talking about actual propaganda techniques that, that produce brainwashing and alter people's personalities and behaviors in a way that is fundamentally not only destructive to democracy, but destructive to them and their families. So in the final two minutes we have here, Jen, uh, lay out for us what, uh, what's being done out there and how can people participate in Oh, shoot. I just wanted to say that um, there was a, you know, one-party rule plan, vast right-wing conspiracy, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the way that it got mainlined, it was sort of a confluence of things. You know, Rush Limbaugh and Fox was through media, and that's why media is so important. Right. So um, this one very important thing, this Tuesday, tomorrow morning, um, there's this group, Rise and Resist, every Tuesday they're in front of a Fox station near you. Um, weekly, every week. So tomorrow, we're doing a little celebration of my book and Fox's 25th anniversary. So we'll be in front of Fox between 9 a.m. and noon, and I'll be giving away signed copies of the book when one earns one by helping us speak truth to power by either reading a passage of the book out loud or posing with one of our Fox is Why Fox is Dangerous signs. Wow. And that's a 1211 6th Avenue and 48th. In Manhattan. Um, correct. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, but I think one group to really check out also is this um, uh, stopdisinformation.org. And, um, and, and uh, I don't know how much more time I have, but there's a lot of things you can do independently. I think one thing is make our legislators make media one of their top priorities. They shy away from it, and for good reason. Um, it's been really scary and traumatic for them to deal with the onslaught of the right, but we have to. Um, so barrage them with phone calls and letters demanding they address the issue of large media ownership and the lies disguised as news. Um, you know, little things you can do, which a lot of people on Twitter have told me they do. Yeah, that is absolutely great. Um, and, and I'm assuming you have links to this over at uh, thebrainwashingofmydad.com too? 
Yeah, people, people, yeah, there's there's information on the website as well. The Brainwashing yeah. of My Dad.com. The book is The Brainwashing of My Dad, also the documentary. You can find links to it from that website. Jen Senko is the author and the director and the producer and the writer and everything else. S E N K O. Jen, thanks so much for dropping by today. It's been great talking with you. Tom, thanks for having me. It's been great talking with you, too, as usual. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Keep up the <laughs> great work, Jen. And thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Most of us equate identity theft with suspicious activity on a credit card. Send you a new card and that's that. The identity theft you need to worry about, though, is home title theft because it could cost you your home. I asked our friends at Home Title Lock to help us understand this crime, and they suggested former FBI agent Art Fitzenmeyer, who is an authority on home title theft. Agent Art, let's get to it. I've heard home title theft is one of the fastest growing crimes in the United States. Is this true? Your listeners have one big misunderstanding about home title theft, and the primary misunderstanding is they don't under the fact that their title is a public record that anybody can get a hold of it and if a thief gets a hold of it they can change it and change the ownership by doing so by forging your signature on what's known as a quit claim deed and that will change the ownership in the records from your name to the thief's name and then the thief will go out and borrow money against your home's title and then the thief and that money will disappear. He'll be in some nice warm climate with the, you know, the drinks with the little umbrellas in them, and you'll be going to the courthouse because the lenders are going to knock on your door because your house is the uh, surety for that loan, and they're going to want you to pay the loan or they're going to sell your house to get their money back. They don't want your house. They're not interested in that, but they will go to great lengths to sell your home so that they get paid back the money they let somebody borrow using your home as the collateral. Doesn't my homeowner's insurance or doesn't the bank, uh, you know, that gave me the mortgage, doesn't, don't they cover me? No, nothing covers it. And the only way to really stop this is to get involved before that check is issued. Because once that check is issued, you're going to be in serious trouble. And one of the things that, that most people don't understand is when you file a, a quit claim deed, even if it's a false one, most recorder's offices are required to file the documents filled out. They don't uh, give you the third degree or anything like that. It gets sorted out later on. Well, later on, it's going to be too late for you if this is a false filing. So the real answer here, quite frankly, and that's why I'm here, is to subscribe to Home Title Lock at HomeTitleLock.com because we have our own proprietary um, high-powered software suite that will watch your title 24-7. And if it's disturbed in any way, the software notifies you and us. And we have a resolution division that will contact you and say, you know, something's going on with your title. Do you know about it or not? Now, sometimes you might be getting a home equity loan or there might be a construction contract as you're renovating or something like that. And it's a legitimate uh, entry on your title. But if it's not, then we go to work and make sure that it gets resolved and you end up with a clean title 
so that you can use that if you want to sell your house later on for retirement. If this all cleaned up for you, we spend up to a million dollars in legal fees to make sure it gets done to your satisfaction. And if you don't do that, you're going to go to the courthouse and you're going to have to hire an attorney and prove to a judge that that it's not your signature, that the uh, document is false. Sometimes that takes up to two years, and that can cost you thirty to fifty thousand dollars in legal fees just to get your own house back. And oh, you know, by the way, Tom, try to get a loan on your house to pay your legal fees when your house is in foreclosure. Wow. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So it gets even uglier unless you stop it right away. And that's what Home Title Lock does for you. What about the identity theft services? Uh, I subscribed to one. I thought that they protected things like, you know, basically all my documents out there. They did all of your documents. Yes, some, there are some small offerings out there in identity theft. If they're very high-end product that's 50 or 60 or whatever uh, dollars per month, that makes Home Title Lock such a great deal at $149 a year for, uh, you know, a full year. Um, the other options out there, for instance, your bank doesn't cover it, and uh, your homeowners association, your homeowners insurance, none of that covers title theft. Remarkable. Well, we're out of time, but thank you, Agent Art, for shedding light on this crime. For those of you who own a home, I'm guessing right now you're feeling about like I am. First things first, you should check to see if your home's title has already been tampered with. One way is by registering your address at HomeTitleLock.com. And be sure to select Podcast in the drop-down menu to get 30 days of free protection. Again, select Podcast in the drop-down menu at HomeTitleLock.com. Agent Art, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it was nice being with you. You know, people really don't understand how vulnerable they are if, it, if you do get targeted. So I, I like the opportunity to tell people about it. So thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Sure. Thank you, Art. Bye-bye. Okay, bye now.